This morning we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation, and that tends to make people nervous. So why don't we go to God in prayer and ask his uh, blessing upon us. Father in heaven, um, we thank you. We thank you this morning that you have gathered us here together to worship you, to praise you, to, to exalt your name, to delight in the fact that Christ our Savior has won, that he is our King, that he has been exalted to your right hand, uh, that he has crushed uh, the devil, and uh, all his enemies are being put under his feet. We pray that your Spirit would speak to us now in your word. May it be clear to us, uh, because admittedly, Lord, it is a, a difficult passage. There's lots here. I pray that your Spirit would feed us on your word, that we would be strengthened for our walk in uh, our various callings throughout this week. We pray, Father, that Christ would be exalted in us as we hear, and again and again we would come to him in dependence. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we'll be reading Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. And again, the, the page number in your uh, church Bibles is going to be 1,034. So it'll be the whole of Revelation chapter 12. Uh, Hear God's word. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a red, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who, was, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness 
to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Amen. Thus far, the word of God. I, I realize that reading the book of Revelation, again, as I mentioned, can sometimes make people nervous. There's lots of imagery. There's lots of symbolism. It's kind of bizarre and strange. It's odd language. It's not like what we're used to if we read the Apostle Paul or the Gospels. It's nice, it's neat and tidy. But whether you recognize it or not, Revelation 12 is actually about a very familiar event. This is the Apostle John's account of the birth of Christ. Um, But rather than featuring fluffy sheep uh, and a straw-filled manger, instead, there's a woman screaming in labor with a dragon waiting to devour her child. Uh, As the commentator Eugene Peterson put it, this is not the nativity story we grew up with, but it is nativity story all the same. Why is Revelation so strange? What's going on here? Well, well, I would suggest to you that that strangeness is actually designed to help you see the world as it really is. Um, In the pre-digital era, um, photographs were developed from images called negatives, you know, film. Um, And they were called negatives because they were the exact opposite of what the developed photograph would look like. That which was light appeared dark, and that which was dark appeared light in the negative. And even uh, if it was a colorized photo, even the, the colors would be reversed. Everything is inversed uh, in, on a negative. And if you just look at a negative, it's, it's bizarre. Everything's backwards. Everything is strange. Everything is counterintuitive. But here's the thing. Even though it's strange and bizarre, it is showing you the world that's there in front of the lens of the camera. You're just seeing it from a different perspective, a perspective you're not normally used to. That's what John is doing here. He's pulling back the curtain, as it were, on the spiritual world all around us and helping us see what's really there. But most of the time we don't notice it. He's unveiling the invisible spiritual realities that you and I otherwise would just miss. And here's his point, friends, as we've mentioned it many times already in this service, Christ has defeated the devil. And that reality has implications for how you and I live our lives this coming week. John unveils three key things that we need to know if we're to follow Jesus faithfully in a hostile world. He shows us here first the true source of conflict, the true character of Christ, and the true nature of our life in this world. So first, the the true source of conflict. If someone were to ask you, where does most of the the, the conflict in your life come from? What, What would you say? 
you say, perhaps my spouse, <laughs> if only. Um, perhaps your parents. Uh, if you're a parent, perhaps you say your children. Uh, perhaps it's your, your boss or your manager who's a total jerk. Um, perhaps it's finances. You know, those cause tension and stress and anxiety. Uh, you know, the term's coming to an end. Maybe it's your lecturers. They're, 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 they're the ones who are causing the conflict in your life. Well, John very politely tells us this morning, that's absolute rubbish. All right. The fights you and I experience on a daily basis are actually symptomatic. They're symptomatic of a far deeper conflict, something which John paints here in terms of a cosmic war. That's what we glimpse in these two great signs that appear in heaven. Uh, In verse 1, you have this, this radiant woman clothed with the sun and moon and crowned with the stars, and she, at least initially, calls to mind uh, Mary, you know, the mother of Jesus. But how is she dressed? How is she dressed? Again, she, she, her clothing is made up of the same elements, sun, moon, and 12 stars that we find in Genesis 37, uh, where Joseph dreamed about his father, Jacob, and, and his mother, and all his brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel. They're bowing down to him. And so this woman also represents the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament. But you can go even further back in time here, all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. God gave Adam and Eve a simple command. You may eat of any tree in the garden except for this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But into the garden crept Satan in the form of a serpent. And he tempted Eve, and she and Adam rebelled against God, eating the forbidden fruit. And that's where it all began. All conflict, all war, all fights, all tension and stress, all uh, racism and school shootings, all bitterness and broken promises, all those things start there in the garden to this one moment where this root of sin that came into the world through their sin now infects all of us as well. We too, in Adam, joined the serpent in raising our fists in rebellion against God. But when God arrives in judgment on Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, in the midst of pronouncing the curse, he also provides hope in Genesis 3.15. When God curses the serpent, he says, I will put enmity, conflict, a war. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And despite their sin, God has mercy on these human beings. And instead of decreeing destruction upon them, he instead declares war on the serpent. And since then, with each generation, those who trusted uh, in God waited expectantly for the birth of this offspring, the seed of the woman, this child who would come and deliver God's people, who would rescue them from the effects of sin and the curse, who would save us really from ourselves. Um, Dennis Johnson, who wrote a, a commentary on Revelation called Triumph of the Lamb, 
He says this, Ever since the expulsion from Eden, God's people have been like an expectant mother, awaiting the birth of the seed who would champion their cause against Satan, the liar and accuser and murderer. So all of redemptive history, from Eve to Mary, is summed up in this one figure of a woman, a woman in the throes of labor, on the verge of giving birth to the Messiah. She's screaming in agony. She's, she's helpless. It's a very vulnerable and intimate portrait that we have here. She's, she's vulnerable. She's helpless. And there, waiting in front of her as she's in agony, it's not her husband. It's not a midwife. Waiting to catch the baby is a dragon. This great red dragon with seven horns, or seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. And if you look down at verse 9, John makes clear that this dragon is that same ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. But here, the disguise is off. Here, we see the serpent as he truly is. He's not a I suppose some people might see snakes as friendly or cuddly. But, but he's, not, he's not innocent. You see him for who he really is. And he's standing there, ready to devour the Messiah. This vision that John gets, this dream, as it were, has become a nightmare. The child is about to be murdered. God's promise is about to be destroyed and come to nothing. The dragon is about to win. Now, now if this is the negative, if this is the, the negative, remember, what's the positive, as it were? Uh, what's the developed photograph? What does that look like on this side of the spiritual divide? Well, all we would have to do is turn to the opening chapters of Matthew, um, to the birth of Christ there. Remember that the wise men, before going to Bethlehem, uh, the, the wise men first went to King Herod and told him that a baby has been born who will be king of the Jews. And Herod was a jealous uh, and cruel old man who killed even his own family to consolidate his power. And he sees Jesus as a threat. And he eventually sends soldiers to butcher every boy in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. But it's not just Herod. Over and over throughout redemptive history, God's promise is like a scarlet thread that comes within a hair of being severed. Cain kills Abel. Esau nearly killed Jacob. Saul almost kills David twice. Uh, Queen Athaliah and Joash, Haman and Esther, over and over and over again throughout the course of history. The circumstances differ, but each time the, the, the dragon inspires and influences men and women to try to upset God's plan, to try to, 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 to destroy this promise of a Messiah who will come to rescue God's people. Over and over, the dragon de- deceives and destroys. And friends, the same is true in, in our lives as well. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I'm not saying we should then go and see Satan under every rock and you know, behind every tree. 
Um, that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, but, friends, we, we are in a real spiritual conflict, and we ignore that at our own peril. If we, if we don't recognize that the spiritual nature of our lives, you and I, we're going to become complacent. We're going to get distracted by the symptoms of the conflict. We're going to see other people as our enemies. We're going to see situations as our enemies, finances as our enemies, instead of recognizing that we are actually in a spiritual war. And we're going to lose an active sense of dependence on Jesus, our King and our Savior. And that then turns to the second point, the true character of Christ. This nightmare vision takes an unexpected turn because uh, just before the Messiah is is devoured by the dragon in verse 5, suddenly he's caught up to heaven and to the throne of God. You know, in, in, in one phrase... John summarizes the whole life of Jesus from birth to ascension. In a way, it's, it's all actually almost anticlimactic. This is not how a good director for a movie would tell a story. Oh, and then it, and then it was done. Oh, oh okay. Oh, um, you know, it, it doesn't make sense to us. But again, we're seeing things from the perspective of heaven, as it were. And from the perspective of heaven, friends, there's no contest. There's not, there, the issue wasn't even, you know, it, it was, there wasn't even a chance that this would fail or that he would be defeated. That's just the thing. There is no contest. God's promise cannot be undermined. John is summarizing for, uh, for us, as it were, the hymn that Paul writes in Philippians 2 of how Christ entered our world, humbling himself, taking on human nature, and going to the cross. Or like Paul wrote in Galatians 3, that Jesus was born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law and to keep the law for us. See, Jesus is this obedient Messiah, this obedient Savior King. Jesus is the last Adam, standing in our place and doing what the first Adam should have done, obeying his Father in heaven. And so when the serpent slithered his way into the Garden of Eden and starts whispering lies in Eve's ear. What should Adam have done? Well, Adam should have marched over to that tree, yanked the serpent out of the tree, thrown it on the ground, and stomped on it. That's what he should have done. But he didn't. Instead, he joined in Satan's rebellion. Jesus, though, friends, came to crush the head of the serpent. And as a result, Jesus is not just an obedient Messiah, he's an exalted Messiah, Having obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth that he is Lord. Because he obeyed his Father in heaven, he earned the reward. He is caught up to the throne of God and crowned as King of kings and Lord of lords. This is all authority has been given to him. And this is what Jesus himself says in Matthew 28 at the end of it, just before he ascends back to heaven. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. This authority is demonstrated here in, in, this, in our passage in Revelation 12 in verses 7 through 9. Let me read those verses again. Verses 7 through 9. 
Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So while war is taking place on earth between the dragon and this woman who's in labor, war is simultaneously taking place in heaven between Michael and the angels of God versus the dragon and his angels. It's, it's, it's like a brawl in a pub. Right between the, the cricket squad and the rugby squad, right at the waypat, let's say. Um, but with the arrival of Jesus in heaven, exalted to God's right hand, the fight's over. It's done. And note how nonchalantly John describes the conflict. Yeah, they were fighting, and then they weren't. Um, and there just wasn't room for them anymore in heaven. And so the rugby squad got kicked out of the waypat, as it were, thrown out the window on its ear. Um, this is what happened. What, well, what's going on here? Well, we don't have to guess because John tells us in verse 10, right? And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Note as well how many times thrown down occurs in this passage. It's like five times. He has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. The seed of the woman has crushed the head of the serpent. Satan is powerless against the arrival of Jesus in heaven. Now, what were Satan and his demons doing in heaven in the first place? Well, they were standing like uh, prosecuting attorneys in God's courtroom, uh, accusing God's people before the just judge. You could think here of Zechariah 3. You can look at that after, after the service later this afternoon. Um, accusing God's people. Because here's the thing, friends. Satan knows your sins. He, he knows your weaknesses, both large and small. He has access to your rap sheet. He, he knows what you do and think in the darkness when you think no one else is looking or paying attention. He, know, he, he knew that those whom God had chosen for salvation haven't met his standards. We failed, each and every one of us. We rightly deserve the condemnation of God. In fact, there's no good reason why we shouldn't be judged until the Messiah appears in heaven. Why did Jesus' arrival make all the difference? Well, Jesus is not just the obedient Messiah and the exalted Messiah. He's also identified here as the suffering Messiah. Look at verse 11. And they have conquered him how? By the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is portrayed here as the Lamb of God who has suffered for his people. He is the one whose, whose blood covers our sins. And he's the perfect sacrifice who came bearing his own blood, as Hebrews talks about, into the throne room of God, presenting the sacrifice himself to the Father that takes away our sin, that covers us, our guilt is gone. Our, blood, our sin has been atoned for. 
God's just wrath towards sin has been satisfied. Our rap sheet, our record of wrongdoing has been nailed to the cross. And friends, there is no double jeopardy. He has been judged in our place. God cannot judge us anymore. Remember the scene in Revelation 5 as well. John, John weeps there because no one is found worthy to, to uh, open the scroll or to look at it. And when someone tells him that the line of Judah has come and has conquered. But when John looks up, you remember, what does he see? He doesn't see a lion. Instead, he sees a lamb. A lamb entering the courtroom. A lamb who has been slain. Satan no longer has any claim upon us. There is no accusation he can level against you or me. So Jesus tosses him out of the courtroom and throws his wig after him for good measure. You face a defeated foe, friends. That then leads to the third point. The true nature of our life in this world. John uh, describes our experience in this world in, in three ways. First, we are a persecuted people. Look at verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had, been, who had given birth to the male child. You know, as the people of God, we are, we are hunted and pursued by the dragon. And it's no accident that the Greek word there for pursue is the same word for persecute as well. Um, even though Satan has been dealt a mortal blow by Jesus, and even though he's been cast out of heaven and can no longer accuse you and me before God, he's still dangerous. He's still dangerous. You, know, you can see verse 12, woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Christ's first coming was, was like uh, the invasion at Normandy in World War II. It secured a, a beachhead. And as a result, you know, with the Allies at Normandy, it was, after that was a successful invasion, it was only a matter of time before Nazi Germany fell. There was no way they could replace the men and the equipment that they had lost. But, as you remember, Hitler and his stubbornness ordered his troops to fight for every inch of ground. And as a result, they prolonged the war by almost a whole year. It made the fighting that much more brutal. In the same way, Satan knows he's been defeated. He's been thrown down. He's a conquered foe. But he's going to go down fighting. And so he knows his time is short until Christ's second coming. And so he puts his full energy into doing as much harm to God's people as he can. Our life, as a result, is one of difficulty. It is one of spiritual dryness. It is one in which we experience lack, in which we are opposed, in which we're often marginalized, in which we're often weary. Yet notice, too, we're not just a, a persecuted people, we're also a provided-for people, a people provided for. Look at verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And then look down at verse 14 as well. The woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished. God has prepared for us a place 
the place that we're in now. He hasn't abandoned you or, or forgotten you. Remember the complaint of, of the children of Israel in the wilderness. They'd gone through the Red Sea and they're on their way to the promised land. But when they get to the wilderness, they start complaining against God. And do you remember what that complaint was? Well, the complaint was, why have you brought us into the wilderness to die? It's rather ironic, because why did God bring them into the wilderness? He brought them into the wilderness so that they might live, so that they might live free from their Egyptian taskmasters. He had brought them out so that they might live, not so that they might die. And then God abandoned them there. Well, no, he didn't. He provided them with manna in the wilderness, daily providing their needs. Just as we, in the Lord's Prayer, ask for God to provide us our daily needs. He provided them with meat to eat. He provided them with water from the rock. In the same way now, friends, God provides for his people in the wilderness. Your life might seem dry and dusty, hot and unbearable. It's the same way with God's people. He is making a way. He is making a way for you and for me. Because thirdly, we're a pilgrim people. We're persecuted, but we're also provided for. And we're a pilgrim people on our way to the promised land. We're a people of the gaps. Uh, We live in this in-between time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Three times in this passage, in verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14, John points out that this time period that we're in, that it's limited. It's fixed. It's not like I don't know if you ever saw the TV show, this is a song that doesn't end, it goes on and on, my friends. This is not like that, friends. This is not an endless car trip with the children in the back saying, are we there yet? That's not what's going on here. Um, Jesus will return. He is going to come back. And when he does, it won't be bearing grace and forgiveness. Rather, he will come with judgment on his enemies. Look again at verse 5. How is this baby described? He's the one who was born to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And if you know that your Old Testament, you'll know that that's a a phrase quoted from Psalm 2. He'll rule the nations with a rod of iron. And that phrase occurs only two places in the book of Revelation. Here and in Revelation 19. In Revelation uh, here we see that the here we see the baby caught up to heaven. In Revelation 19 we see that baby come back, but he doesn't come back as a baby. Rather, he comes back as a conquering warrior king, riding on the clouds, riding on this white steed at the head of the armies of heaven. He comes again not to cast Satan out of heaven, but to cast Satan into the lake of fire along with all who are allied to him. I don't know, friends, if you are a believer in Jesus this morning, but friends, he is coming back. And he says that he's coming back soon. And so I would urge you, if you haven't rested in Christ yet, if you haven't trusted him and given your life to him, if you haven't bent the knee to him, recognizing him as your Savior and your Lord, I would urge you to do so. Rest on him. Trust in him. He has crushed the devil. And he is coming back with joy and victory for all those who are resting in him. 
but with judgment to those who are not. So I encourage you, if you haven't, submit to him today by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portrait, this picture that we get. It it is a, a negative. It seems and sounds and looks bizarre, but we thank you, Father, for the, the reality that it shows us that Jesus has won, that he has conquered hell, he has conquered the devil, and he has conquered death, that he is our victorious Lord. We thank you that through him, we have been, uh, although we are persecuted, we have been provided for. You are continuing to provide for us. And that you have made us this pilgrim people, waiting, longing, expectantly for our King to come back. I pray, Father, that that day would come soon. Our hearts together cry out, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. But until that day, give us strength, give us faith, give us the eyes to see the spiritual conflict all around us and to set our hope on Christ, our King. We pray this in his name. Amen.